succeed. Today, my podcast guest is an award-winning medical journalist, Jerome Byrne, who has exposed many a scandal, been first to the press with numerous breakthroughs, both in complementary and mainstream medicine. His latest piece in the Daily Mail last month was on long COVID. In this podcast, we're going to discuss all things COVID related from vaccines to vitamins, long COVID, antiviral drugs such as ivermectin, and the politics behind the current and alternative approaches to the pandemic. Hi, Jerome. How are you? Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, I thought it would be good to start at the front, so to speak, the prevention end, uh, and get an update on vaccines. They, 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 they were, of course, touted as the answer, that if we all got vaccinated, then the whole pandemic um, would be over. What's your take on sort of where we are at now? Uh, well, I have to confess that deep confusion, I think, along with a huge number of other people, um, because there clearly is a benefit to it. it I, I think the people who said it was simply going to be a disaster are wrong. There clearly is a benefit, but it comes with an awful lot of other either unknowns or things that could well be damaging or harmful. And I think the, um, the lack of transparency about what's going on biologically with the vaccines and exactly what they're doing and what the results of trials have shown and also the fact that um, it's very difficult to get a, a picture, an overall picture of the data means that being uh, hesitant, which has now become an insult, but a degree of vaccine hesitancy seems to me to be very sensible. It's not that you shouldn't get vaccinated, but it's equally, I think, the case that forcing people to get vaccinated is a really bad path to go down. And I think we're all waiting to see how things turn out. Of course, for people who are very vulnerable, that makes uh, sense. Although again, their vulnerability may also mean why they have more problems of being da damaged by the vaccine. Um, and I, for one, would like to know answers to things to do with transmission and to do with uh, the, is that ability, the ability to reduce transmission or the ability to reduce a bad side effect. Both of those seem to be things that are getting worse with the vaccine. They don't, they don't seem to be as effective according to studies coming out of Israel and other places. And I think that uh, it's that kind of uncertainty that leaves people like me and lots of other people confused. And have you been vaccinated? I have. I mean, um, I was vaccinated uh, because my, uh, one of my relatives has a very bad lung condition. And there was a feeling that uh, putting her at risk was something that even though I was hesitant, uh, was not worth doing. And it, so it was a, a family affair. And I had no problems with the vaccine at all. I have also had long COVID. Um, and what exactly how that interacts is, is also a bit of a, a murky area, whether it um, 
you do better with a, a natural immunity and how much of a natural immunity you get and how long it lasts. A lot of those things are still up in the air. But um, yes, I've been vaccinated and it was absolutely fine. So, I might just mention one odd thing, which mm -hmm. is my daughter also had uh, long COVID and she has a condition which makes her vulnerable with her cartilage and her, the way that her muscles work. Mm -hmm. And she, as a part of that, she'd had headaches for over 18 months every day. And when she had her uh, second jab, she woke up the next morning and for the first time for, I think it was 280 days, uh, she had no headaches. So very powerful effect on the body. In that case, a, a very beneficial side effect, but that's the kind of unknown that we're dealing with. So you're obviously not anti-vax. <clears throat> um, I'm not, no. Um, I wrote to uh, uh, <coughs> uh, my colleague, Dr. Richard Halverson, who runs a vaccine clinic. He's usually, so pre-COVID, he's the man who gets cited in the newspapers talking about you know, different vaccines. And uh, I asked him what his opinion was, and he said it's not possible to have a considered opinion on the COVID vaccines yet, with so little published peer-reviewed research on safety or effectiveness. Uh, he specializes in children's vaccines, by the way. He said children should not be given the vaccine as it has not been tested for safety in them, and they are themselves at little risk of serious illness from COVID. The term anti-vax is unhelpful. I, that's Richard, Dr. Richard Halverson, have been accused of being anti-vax, even though I run a vaccine clinic. Um, the term vaccine hesitant is now being used more widely. I'm surprised that anyone who is not vaccine hesitant regarding the COVID vaccines, which have been brought on the market at unprecedented speed. That is not to say that they should definitely not have it, but to hesitate would seem entirely appropriate. Kind regards, Richard. So that's sort of a little, just a little bit of the background, but um, I was reading The Week, uh, which summarizes all the newspapers, uh, this current issue, and it's sort of a little bit alarming. Uh, in, in one report, it says Israel's fourth wave vaccination blunts, but does not defeat. Worryingly, 90% of new infections in Israel are in largely vaccinated over 50-year-olds, and nearly 60% of gravely ill patients are fully jabbed. The New York Times says some experts reckon high infection rates among early recipients point to a waning of the vaccine's protection six to eight months after second jabs. And then another uh, piece uh, in, in the same paper referring to the UK says fully vaccinated adults who are infected with the Delta variant can have the same level of the virus as unjabbed patients, a study has found. Oxford University researchers stress that it is not entirely clear how this affects transmission rates as they may have high viral loads for shorter periods of time, but their findings suggest that herd immunity is less achievable. So yes, there's some sort of slightly worrying uh, results coming up now. And, and, I, and I think the, um, the interaction between natural immunity and vaccine immunity is something that there's still also a lot of questions over. Yeah. Um, and I have seen papers which um, point out that the point 
of the, uh, the vaccine is that it targets a one specific protein in the, vir in, in the virus, which is the, uh, the, the crown, that, that sort of spiky crown that, that is a marker of, of coronavirus. And that if you get a change in that, which is what a lot of these variants are about, then the vaccine is no longer, that's why vaccines are targeted specifically at, at one com configuration, don't work when a new variant comes along. Whereas if you've got natural immunity, um, you have a range of proteins in, in the vaccine, in, in the virus will be registered. And so if the, even if the, some of those change, um, natural immunity seems a more effective way of handling new variants than the other solution with, with uh, the vaccine, which is to pro keep producing new responses to the new variants, which means that we will be taking uh, multiple vaccines, um, boosters forever and ever, which seems a, uh, a, a very unsatisfactory approach. So although it, there as well. Although extremely profitable. I mean, <laughs> I, ha I have to say that I am a skeptic, <clears throat> simply having been in the field of nutrition for 40 years and seen uh, the dirty dealings in the pharmaceutical industry around antidepressants and suicide and uh, you know, the, the uh, antacids and, and, and their sort of stopping B12 absorption. I mean, all sorts of issues. And I'm mindful of the fact that, you know, Pfizer, for example, has had $2.3 billion fines for dirty dealing, AstraZeneca, uh, I think uh, around half, um, half a billion. So I'm sort of, I, I kind of start from the point of skepticism. And I, I note that if what actually happens, I mean, Reuters just reported Within five to six months, the effectiveness of Pfizer shot fell to 74%. AstraZeneca shot fell to 67%. And uh, after four to five months, and that's not really about Delta, you know, uh, Delta variants. That's just about, you know, decreasing uh, effectiveness. And uh, it also goes on to say, under the worst case future scenario, protection could fall below 50% uh, for older people and healthcare workers, which, by the way, is pretty much where the flu jab is. So you then get this situation where you know the vaccine wanes so you have to have another one and you have a new variant so you have to have another one and so on and i'm just a bit skeptical because i remember eight years ago or so when when uh, gsk chief announced that basically they couldn't make money out of blockbuster drugs in the western world anymore there weren't any they've spent you know billions trying to get a blockbuster drug for dementia and completely failed and the word was, we've got to move into vaccines because that's where the money is. So here we suddenly have a situation, maybe coincidentally, you know, maybe correctly on the science, I'm not sure, uh, where there's a, you know, a sort of a case um, that every six months or so, we've all got to be, you know, revaccinated, which obviously is a considerable cost. I hope this isn't jumping the gun. I know you've planned where we should be going in this conversation um, in a broad sense. But I mean, the, the implication of all of this, um, what do we know, is protection waning? Exactly what are you protected against? All these unknowns um, do point up to uh, one very simple conclusion, which is that simply relying on the vaccine 
is not really a good public health strategy. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that um, we need to think about what one can do to strengthen the resilience of the body in fighting off uh, infections, because we know that we have a, a hugely complicated sy system, our immune system, which is designed to do exactly that. And I think that uh, one of the most alarming things that's been going on in, in the background is that any attempts to suggest there might be something else that can be done to protect you are firmly squashed on. on and there's this call about um, fake news and um, putting out uh, deliberately wrong information. And, and anyone who's involved in that gets uh, attacked. I mean, and we know that posts that you've put up have been taken down or um, replaced with a statement saying fake news or bad news or whatever. So I think one of the things that we're going to talk about here is exactly what else you can do. Um, no, I think I think that that's terribly important and I'd like to move into it. But there's just one other result out of Israel, which kind of double emphasizes that. And I'm I'm reading here in January and February um, uh, compared to June, July and the first half of August. Um, uh, six to 13 times a person is six to 13 times more likely to get infected, a vaccinated person than an unvaccinated person. Uh, who were previously infected with the coronavirus. So in one analysis comparing 32,000 people in the healthcare system, the risk of developing symptomatic COVID-19 was 27 times higher among the vaccinated and the risk of hospitalization was eight times higher. So, I mean, the point I want to make here is that uh, the previously infected people uh, seem to be doing much better. And as you say, uh, the immune system is a sort of multi- you know, talented thing, which broadly we can split into two halves, the innate immune reaction, um, and then the learned immune reaction. And most people don't realize that to a large extent, we get rid of colds, um, not from having learnt uh, uh, about that specific virus and having developed antibodies, but by many other mechanisms of our innate immune system, which obviously depends on things like vitamin C and D and zinc and so on. So, you know, one sort of valid question is, is, is should we actually get infected, um, but know how to deal with infection such that it doesn't uh, tip into the serious um, uh, reaction, the sepsis cytokine storm. And I just want to point out for those listening, people don't die from the virus, what happens is if you do not get rid of this viral infection reasonably quickly, let's say in the first week, uh, then what happens is you have such a large amount of dead virus particles that the immune system reacts against them and produces this uh, inflammatory, basically it's called a cytokine storm. It's much the same as sepsis or septicemia or blood poisoning. So in other words, it's the immune system attacking dead virus particles. So, you know, a very valid question is, should we actually, you know, be okay about getting infected, but know what to do when we do, uh, which raises the question of what should we do, you know, when we get infected, or what should we be doing before uh, infection every day of our lives to, re to reduce the risk? Can I just <clears throat> throw in there, sorry, excuse me, 
<clears throat> I can just throw in there another bit of information about declining uh, effectiveness of the vaccine is that there was a, a piece in a Scottish paper uh, within the last few days, this is uh, in August, um, saying that there were now more people in a hospital with COVID who had been vaccinated than those who hadn't been. And that does also reinforce the idea that, you know, we're, we're not looking at a, a magic bullet here from the vaccine, but something that um, may be waning or may have other effects as well. Yeah, so in a sense, the, the pitch for the vaccines <clears throat> was number one, to protect yourself. And it's certainly true in studies, mm -hmm. uh, in the so earlier studies anyway, that being vaccinated means you're less likely to end up in hospital. Uh, so less likely to tip into severe COVID. Um, we, have to, we have to question <clears throat> in relation to new variants. Uh, the second was to protect other people. Uh, I think a lot of people were under the illusion that you won't get infected if you've had the vaccine and therefore wouldn't transmit it. But obviously you do get infected and you do transmit it. And the question is whether you transmit it for a shorter period of time. And uh, the third sort of big pitch was herd immunity. You know, if we vaccinate enough people, we'll get to herd immunity. Um, but as it says, you know, in, in the week, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of unlikely. The fact that you see more viral load with the Delta variant hints towards herd immunity being more challenging. And I saw one um, uh, immunologist who, who basically said that <clears throat> if, if the vaccine is only 60 to 70% effective, you'd have to vaccinate 120% of the population in order to achieve herd immunity. So, <laughs> so it's sort of not gonna happen. So there, there's, there's just question marks. And of course that raises the whole thing of, you know, what else can we do? And as a, as a student of uh, the late Dr. Linus Pauling, who felt so strongly about the, this, that he put on the, literally on the front cover of his book on vitamin C and the cold, uh, that everyone needs to know that a high dose of vitamin C, if taken upon infection, and he was actually referring uh, to a swine flu epidemic in this context, uh, could sort of massively reduce, you know, reduce um, symptoms and duration, which is exactly what all the studies show. Uh, I so wanted to, yeah, I mean, I can give you a quick update on that because uh, actually we've, we have just submitted uh, a paper on, I mean, we did a review, vitamin C for COVID. So can I just say it might be useful for listeners as to who we is? Yes, uh, yes, uh, exactly. So uh, last year we set up a group called vitamin C for COVID.com. And it's a group of just under a thousand um, healthcare practitioners, a dozen professors across pharmacology, nutrition, um, emergency medicine, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we are a, a, a conglomerate of medical and scientific and nutritional and, and uh, biological and pharmaceutical or pharmacological experts. And um, a group of us published a paper last year uh, looking at all the evidence that vitamin C could work for COVID. 120 studies were cited. And we could call it circumstantial evidence because there's a lot of data on flu and colds and sepsis and all the rest on vitamin C. But of course, you know, the retort to that 
And by the way, that paper is referred to by the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Primary Care and Health Prevention, Joe Churchill, Department of Health and Social Care. So it's kind of in the system. Uh, but the, the retort was there haven't been any actual studies on COVID, people infected with COVID and vitamin C. And of course, at the time, that was true. But now, um, as of today, there have been 10 intervention trials specifically treating people with COVID uh, with vitamin C. Five of them are what we call randomized controlled trials, which is the highest level of evidence. Five are what we call retrospective cohort trials, where you look at one group who's had one treatment, another group who's not, and, uh, and compare them. So we've got 10 trials and our paper on this has just been submitted uh, so it's going through peer review so at the moment it's not yet peer reviewed and uh, I'll just read you the sort of conclusion of the abstract it says the current level of evidence from randomized controlled trials suggests that intravenous vitamin C intervention may improve oxygenation parameters reduce inflammatory markers decrease days in hospital and reduce mortality, particularly in the more severely ill patients. High doses of oral vitamin C supplementation may also improve the rate of recovery in less severe cases. And this, by the way, was referring to a study giving eight grams of vitamin C to people infected with COVID, but not so severe to be hospitalized. And then the last line of this abstract, no adverse events have been reported in published vitamin C clinical trials in COVID-19 patients. So that's the kind of state of the evidence, so to speak. It might just be worth mentioning um, that one of the uh, features of, of vitamin C that doesn't seem to be understood by the medical profession, uh, which are all still um, refusing to acknowledge any benefits from vitamin C at all, is that the body needs higher levels when it's dealing with an infection. Um, <clears throat> and this is something that is not at all surprising because vitamin C is a major player in the immune system. Um, and that we humans can't make vitamin C, and so we need extra amounts from the outside. Animals can, and animals do push up their um, production very significantly. Um, and it's still depressing, if you uh, have been following it at all, to see repeated accounts that uh, if you give large amounts of vitamin C, it's simply a waste because the body pees it out and so on. That's all that's still being repeated. And it's simply not true. In fact, um, as the met some of the researchers who are in the group that you're at the centre of, Patrick, um, have found that many of the people with uh, serious COVID um, have astonishingly low levels of vitamin C in their system. And this is not because they haven't had access to oranges or to a healthy balanced diet or any of the other things which are supposed to supply enough vitamin C, but simply because their body has been burning it up at a, a very fast rate. And that's why it really makes sense to give large amounts to people when they're in hospital. Uh, yes. And you know, we're talking, you need several grams of vitamin C to get the tissues, the cells to the normal 
level that one would expect. And one of the fascinating dynamics in all of the animals who make vitamin C, which is like 99.99% of all animals, is they keep their blood level of vitamin C very, very consistent between 60 and, and 80 units. And uh, if they get a cold, for example, or viral infection, and they and need more, they simply make more. And they always make enough for some to spill out in the urine. And by the way, it's very protective of the genitourinary tract. So what we know is that uh, for any animal, and the same is true for humans, the way that you establish that the tissues um, have achieved their, their normal saturation level uh, is to find how much vitamin C is required for some to be present in the urine. And that's why we've been delivering these vitamin C urine sticks to intensive care units. And they've been testing their COVID patients. And as you say, finding that they often need, you know, six grams to, to achieve a, a normal level. And six grams, one gram is, you know, is, is uh, you know, 20 oranges. So it, this, isn't, this isn't about eating oranges. It's, it's really, it's, it's just not going to do it. And the one study that did come out, I mean, what I do and what Linus Pauling recommended, and extraordinarily, it's, it has never been tested in this dose, is if I ever get sick, and I had all the symptoms of COVID last year, I take a gram every hour because I'm trying to get my blood level very, very high. And one study uh, gave outpatients uh, uh, eight grams uh, across the day, and they had a 70% improved recovery rate. In reality, it, it cut their duration of infection by about one and a half days. But I was a bit dubious of this study because basically what happened is somebody would have to go to hospital or A&E, um, get tested, found to be COVID positive, and then asked if they'd like to take part in the trial. And the one thing I asked, one thing we've learned you know, clinically is the sooner you start, the better. If you start at the very beginning of symptoms with very high doses, you tend to get rid of infection in 24 to 48 hours. So I kind of figured if I got symptoms, I wouldn't go to hospital or A&E on day one. I probably wouldn't go on day two. You know, I might go on day three, possibly day four. Um, then I've got to be tested. Uh, and I've got to agree to do this. So, you know, it, it seems to me that they could already have been, you know, at least four days into infection. And I did ask the uh, authors of this paper if they had that information. And they said that they did, but they weren't willing to disclose it. Um, but even despite that shortcoming, uh, they did get a 70% improved rate of recovery although that wasn't put in the abstract. <laughs> and in, in, in fact, the, there was a press release. This was from the Journal of the American Medical Association, which we know is very anti-vitamins. Uh, they had actually spent money on a press release saying this proved that vitamin C didn't work when actually it did exactly what we expected it would do. Yes, vitamin C, it's been, I want to, I, I've actually got two things which are sort of interesting. Uh, one is I've got the latest letter, 12th of August, from uh, Joe Churchill, head of parliamentary uh, under Secretary of State for Primary Care and Health Prevention. And she says, uh, based on the data currently available, um, we do not believe there is sufficient evidence to conclude that vitamin C is safe. Right <laughs> that I find extremely bizarre and effective treatment for COVID-19. So, you know, it's it's a, it's a funny old one, based on the data available, it isn't safe and it isn't effective. That's, that's a government statement. 
Can, can I just sort of jump in here and say that um, during the uh, epidemic, there have been a large number of uh, drugs which have been suggested might be beneficial. And there's been quite a, an organized program for testing them. And by definition, um, those drugs are not known to have an effect on COVID because COVID hasn't been there for very long. And also, as is the case with nearly all drugs, um, they all inevitably have a range of side effects. So if you're worried about a new treatment possibly not being effective and possibly having side effects, then that would mean that you can't test any drugs either. And to put vitamin C in a special category that you can't test because of this uh, uncertainty does suggest there's some, something else going on. It's not simply a detached um, intelligent assessment of the, the benefit and risk. And uh, can I just prompt you to tell the rather wonderful story about not only attempting to find out exactly what the evidence that the uh, various NHS bodies have or don't have about vitamin C, which are extremely reluctant to release, and you've been chasing it down, which is, I think, if you tell a bit of that, I think that's fascinating. And secondly, um, there's the issue that they have been promising for at least a year to do a big study, uh, something called REMAP-CAP, which is going to really be the, the big study to test vitamin C. And what exactly is going on at the moment with the British arm of the REMAP vitamin C study? Uh, yes, well, that's all very interesting, and I, I, I will unpick that. And, and first of all, when you mention anti, antiviral drugs, uh, we have to just look at the scale of benefit, because the best antiviral drug to date uh, has shown 13% effectiveness. This is in you know, preventing people being hospitalized, um, a bit less so on mortality. And vitamin C, you can't really do this properly, a meta-analysis. When you do a meta-analysis and pull all the results of studies, uh, it's, it's valid when the studies are sort of reasonably similar. And we're not quite at the point where I think that can be done properly. But one group have done a meta-analysis of all studies to date. And the figure that came up was 23% was effective. So I think what we can say you know, very truthfully, is there is that vitamin C appears to be more effective than any antiviral treatment that is being touted right now, and certainly is incredibly safe. I mean, actually, it's safer than water because you and this was one of the things that got Linus Pauling interested because he knew that 10 milligrams would stop you dying of scurvy, uh, but 100,000 milligrams will give you loose bowels, but it's not dangerous. Now, if I drink 10 liters of water, in the next 10 minutes, I kill myself. So, you know, as safe as water. So yes, unpicking. So let's, let's sort of put down the players in England on the, we used to have just a national health service um, or a national disease service, which is the fastest growing failing business in Britain, uh, being bankrupted as we read in the papers by diabetes and dementia, uh, just those two. And the big problem is that it doesn't actually tackle the causes of disease, namely prevention. So 
Um, uh, what was set up to deal with that is called Public Health England. Its purpose is to educate and prevent disease. So Public Health England's advisory group uh, on nutrition is called um, SACN, Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition. So um, over on the left side, sort of prevention, we've got that. On the right side, we've got the uh, National Institute of Clinical Excellence called NICE, whose job is to advise doctors about what to do for treatment. And their advisory, well, it sort of started off as SAGE, um, uh, the scientific advisory group of experts, which was a bit accused of not being very transparent. That uh, mutated into something called nerve tag and uh, has now turned into the least transparent of all uh, in the sense that I have not been able to find out who the members of it are, uh, which is called Rapid C19. So their job is to find safe and effective treatment, not prevention, but treatment uh, of COVID. So those are the players. And uh, I've been in touch with Sacken uh, throughout, sending them every single vitamin C study. And they said that they would uh, after one year of ignoring this, uh, review vitamin C in June. Um, however, uh, they didn't sort of deliver the goods. So I used a Freedom of Information Act process and they said that it was not in the public interest to reveal the minutes of their June meeting because they intend to make a statement later uh, in line with their publication schedule, but they did reveal their March meeting where they were told not to review vitamin C uh, so as not to duplicate the effort of the other team, uh, Rapid C19. So I went to Rapid C19 and said, you know, have you reviewed vitamin C? Because I do get letters saying, we don't think there's any evidence. And, and, and the question of course is, well, what evidence have you looked at and how did you reach that conclusion? And eventually with a lot of uh, uh, poking, they, they said, nice, hold this if there is a review, NICE have got it. So I went back to NICE and uh, NICE weren't uh, forthcoming despite the fact they've all had all the research. Uh, so I did a Freedom of Information Act uh, request on NICE and they did reveal minutes in September last year where they make reference to the preliminary results of the first randomized controlled trial using intravenous vitamin C on COVID patients from China uh, in which there was an 80% reduced mortality uh, in those severely ill patients given vitamin C versus placebo, sterile water in the drip. And I want to point out here that the steroids, the dexamethasone trial, um, that produced a 30% reduction in mortality. So this was double. But for those who know a little bit about science and statistics, there's a thing called the p-value, that is the, the probability. And uh, if you have uh, a p-value of, of 0.05, which is a bit like saying, if you ran this study 100 times, you would expect the same results 95 times. And therefore we say this is not chance, uh, in this first uh, or only review that's been disclosed by NICE and Rapid C19 back in September last year, they pointed out that the p-value was 0.06 in the preliminary results, and they listed all the studies that were underway. Now, those studies, of course, have come out, 
and the original randomized trial on vitamin C has come out and its p-value and its final publication is actually 0.04. So in other words, it is by any criteria a statistically significant massive reduction in mortality in severely ill patients. And obviously if Rapid C19 and NICE have listed all the papers that are coming out and they've come out and their remit is to rapid, you know, note the word rapid, uh, look at safe and effective treatments, then they're simply not doing their job. So, so I've done a Freedom of Information Act uh, request on them to say, what have you actually reviewed or published or minuted or, uh, you know, since September? And we're waiting on that one. And meanwhile, back at Public Health England, I asked them for their publication schedule uh, because they said we won't reveal the minutes because we'll do it in line with the publication schedule. And they have said they're going to meet again on November the 10th and uh, we'll make some sort of statement uh, thereafter. So it's like one of those games of football where no one ever scores the goal, you know, PHE, pass it to Sacken, Sacken, pass it to Rapid C19, C19 to Nice, Nice back to Rapid C19, you know. And, and then the sort of, you mentioned the REM app cap study. So the, the kind of excuse for why we're not taking any action despite way more evidence uh, than exists for any antiretroviral agent is we've got a study, says uh, the authorities, Department of Health, Public Health England, and so on, REMAPCAP. This is a, uh, a multi-arm study around the world. So what it means is that intensive care units can select to do an arm of this study. Most of the arms are about drugs. One arm got added about vitamin C. And then what happens is their uh, ICU patients, if they're doing the vitamin C arm, will either get placebo, or vitamin C. Now, I know a lot of people in intensive care units who are saving lives with vitamin C and they will not participate because they just, their job is to save lives. They're not going to give half of their patients, you know, placebo. So, you know, one could say it's unethical at this point in the game to do it. Um, however, uh, and, and here I'll quote the latest letter from the Department of Health, the REMAP-CAP trial into vitamin C started recruiting in November, and we expect recruitment to increase. So uh, two days ago, I contacted one of the lead ICUs uh, uh, in the REMAP-CAP trial uh, to say, have you treated anyone? And uh, they say, we don't have any of the vitamin C we need to open the domain, you know, to start the trial. And we've got very few COVID cases and none enrolled in, in REMAP cap. So, and just to say, this, this particular unit is in the UK. I think it was in Guildford. Is that right? No, it's absolutely true. So I'm not convinced that there is a single person yet who has been enrolled in REMAP cap vitamin C arm in the UK, uh, despite the fact that we are now in September, you know, uh, well past the second wave, about to enter the third wave with a substance that is dirt cheap, completely safe, and has outperformed every other treatment. So, um, you, un you know, this is why, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I and, you know, many others, we go on a protest march with our banners, uh, and we have a little chant which goes, what do we want, vitamin C, why do we want it, save lives, why don't we get it, no profit. And, you know, at the beginning of all this uh, fiasco, one could either say 
that this complete ineptitude is, you know, is just, it's just due to um, inefficiency, you know, basically. I mean, major incompetence. Um, uh, or, you know, one is led down a path where you say, well, actually, uh, there, are for, there are forces who just do not want um, a non-drug, non-profitable, um, you know, solution on the table. And of course, it's not just vitamin C. We've got vitamin D. We've got ivermectin. And I, I find it hard not to veer towards, you know, the second path, that there is an active intent not to use these agents. Can I jump in here and say there is, of course, lurking in the background another huge, great, big black cloud in terms of public health and the rest of it, which relate directly to what's going on with COVID and what's going on with patients, which is the issue of long COVID. Mm -hmm. Is that, shall we, can we say a bit about that now? I would love to say something about that, but could we put first just touch on briefly vitamin D and also um, ivermectin? And, and the reason for doing so is that the evidence is very clear that if you have a high level of vitamin D, at least above 75 nanomoles per liter, which means you're going to need to be supplementing at least a thousand IUs of vitamin D a day, which the Irish government have now told everyone to do, then your chances of getting infected and, and your duration and severity of infection are much less. Uh, we know the same appears to be true with vitamin C, but vitamin C's real potency seems to be in going in with high doses on first symptoms. And then we have the rather excellent research on a off pattern, very inexpensive, um, very safe drug called ivermectin. It's actually an anti-parasite drug that's been used by, taken by billions of people around the world, you know, previously and proven to be incredibly safe. And ivermectin, a bit like vitamin C, uh, does, works at every level. Number one, and by the way, um, uh, you take a double dose to start with then a single dose a month because it lurks in the lungs for up to six weeks. Uh, that if someone has ivermectin in their system, uh, then they are much less likely to become infected. And an example there was, if you have a member in your family who's got COVID, you've got a 50% chance of becoming infected. If you've got ivermectin in your bloodstream, it goes down to about 10 or a maximum of 20%. And the same is true with vitamin C. And ivermectin, if, you're, if you take ivermectin during early infection, it reduces the duration of infection. If you give it to people um, you know, with critical illness, I was just looking at a randomized trial where one arm got hydroxychloroquine, another got placebo plus the hydroxychloroquine, and another arm got ivermectin. And broadly speaking, the non-ivermectin arms uh, were showing you know, sort of 16 to 20% mortality, and the ivermectin arms were showing 0 to 10% mortality, so halving mortality. So, uh, and just in the same way that we've got vitamin C for COVID.com, there's a very brilliant doctor who's an evidence-based medicine expert and scientist called Dr. Tess Lowry. And she has set up a website called bird-group.org. And you think, why BIRD? BIRD stands for the British Ivermectin um, Recommendation Development Group. 
Um, that's what bird-group.org. And again, you'll see tons of evidence. So we've got vitamin C, we've got ivermectin, we've got vitamin D. Now let's talk about long COVID. So what did you, what, what did you find when you dived into it for the Daily Mail? Uh, well, I think, well, first of all, uh, although at the moment it's estimated to involve something like between one and two million people, which is huge, it really isn't on the radar in terms of being a risk factor or what's going on with it. Um, just to explain, long COVID is the name that's now generally given to a condition which is that after you've had COVID, and it may have been uh, not very severe, or it may have been really severe, uh, either can be followed by long COVID, um, you suddenly, uh, you seem to have recovered, your, your lungs are better, you're not so fatigued, you're kind of beginning to function again. And then suddenly, out of the blue, um, the whole thing comes rushing back again, and you may be massively fatigued and have lots of muscle pains and so on. And it's a bit of a mystery. We, uh, one of the many mysteries which lurk in this, in this story, um, exactly why it is, isn't clear that there are a, a couple of some suggestions which I'll come on to a bit. But what happens is, is that you have now a substantial body of people who are in varying ways quite, sometimes quite severely incapacitated, bedridden and so on. Uh, the definition of it is that you're ill for uh, over uh, 12 weeks. So even then that, that's pretty lengthy period of time to be uh, unable to work in, in a lot of cases. So long COVID is a, is a real challenge because it shows up in so many ways. And this is another of the, the confusion, uncertainty, mysteries, um, which is that uh, the number of symptoms it, you can have which indicate that you've got long, long COVID has recently been uh, reported as being 200. There are 200 different symptoms of things like colds, things like eyesight, things like bowels, almost the entire body can be at various times affected by it. Now, can, I, can I ask you a question here? We know that the vast majority of you know, critical COVID and deaths were in a subset of people who were either diabetic or had hypertension or were obese or you know, some way had compromised health. The number of deaths of those who would be classified as healthy um, were actually very, very low. Um, who gets long COVID? Is it anyone or is it the same? Uh, it, it certainly is not limited to um, having a, a pre-existing condition. I mean, I know that, that the, as far as COVID, that people with um, diabetes and so on are, are much more vulnerable, but long COVID seems to be uh, an equal opportunity infection or uh, condition. Uh, I've been talking to a senior uh, consultant who works at Imperial College, and he was a keen cyclist. He used to think nothing of cycling down from London to Brighton and back again in a week uh, over the weekend. Um, very fit, um, obviously followed 
sensible uh, lifestyle, uh, food and so on. And he was pr pretty well incapacitated for about three months with fatigue. And when I was talking to him the other day, um, he at one point apologized and said, I'm really sorry if my uh, speech is a bit peculiar, but I'm still learning to balance uh, the need to breathe with thinking about uh, what I'm saying. Um, so it's that kind of mental effect that, that long COVID can have. So uh, I don't have off the top of my head statistics on, on long COVID, although I do know that it's more likely to affect women. Uh, mm -hmm. Exactly why, again, is unknown. There are so many unknown things about it. Um, one, there's one thing you raise, which you know is sort of logical, but conjectural. And um, I've heard so often when you hear so-and-so got COVID and they were extremely fit, you know, they used to cycle a lot or run triathlete. I, I spoke to one guy, he was a triathlete and so on. And if you look from it through the eye of vitamin C, what you know is that if somebody has just done uh, a significant amount of sport, like an hour of intense exercise, their vitamin C level is massively depleted. In other words, if you're burning energy, you're making oxidants, you need more vitamin C. And at that exact moment, you become very vulnerable. And what we know, and have already stated, that is you need several grams of vitamin C during a viral infection just to have normal tissue levels. And what also is very clearly established is one month without vitamin C, and you've got the actual breakdown of collagen, the scurvy symptoms that we think of with sailors with, you know, their bleeding gums and you know, muscle wastage and, and so on. And what's always struck me as sort of fairly obvious is that if someone's got into a critical state, uh, they've probably suffered for a month, had their vitamin C depleted, and therefore will start to get collagen breakdown. And that's going to mean the lungs won't work properly, the muscles won't work. Vitamin C is totally essential um, for energy production. So, you know, the logic in that sense is is that the first thing you do having, let's say, recovered you know, from COVID is to up your vitamin C level um, and keep it up for a few weeks to kind of repair the damage. Have any, are any of your experts using high dose vitamin C in long COVID patients? I don't know about that, I'm afraid. Um, but what I do know about is that there's been a very interesting paper which came out uh, about a month ago, which was looking at trying to answer the question, what can we do to treat long COVID? Um, and of course, as we've been discussing, there isn't any standard treatment. So you can't do what NICE normally does in these situations and say, well, let's review the evidence, let's uh, examine it, let's see what the most promising treatments are and then recommend that. That data isn't there. So uh, what's been done uh, by Imperial College is they've used a technique which is called Delphi, uh, which is a way of getting a consensus on something about which there's a lot of uncertainty. It's a sort of a standard management consensus uh, system to achieve consensus among a group of experts. So they got about 30 people who were working on the front line with COVID patients, not having any absolutely clear treatment protocols at all. So they were just 
using almost anything that, that, that seemed to have some evidence that it would work. And they then produced a statement and, uh, saying, this is what we found is useful for this type of long COVID, whether it could be the lungs or another sort, which could be fatigue, um, any one of the, the, this, this uh, massive amount of, of different systems in the body, which is affected by long COVID. And what they found was that, in fact, the, there were some benefits from the drugs, but many of the actual frontline clinicians were using complementary medicine. They were using, uh, some were using vitamin C, some were using um, uh, oriental medicine uh, or Indian, or, and, and they were trying herbs and, and a, a range of other things which normally aren't considered. Um, but this paper actually put out a thing saying, if you have these, uh, some of these conditions, here are some of the things it's worth trying. Here are some of the things that we found didn't really work. So a, a really imaginative approach, not only gathering the information, but coming up with data that is normally ignored in, in when NICE and other bodies are looking at what are we going to use they almost never look at the potential uh, of non-drug treatments. Were, were any testing homocysteine and looking at B vitamins? The reason I ask that question is there's very good studies showing that having a raised homocysteine level, which means faulty methylation, which is dependent on B vitamins, a very big factor in chronic fatigue uh, syndrome, was the best predictor of the degree of lung damage. And remember, if there is a residual lung damage, that means you have less oxygen supply, which means the muscles are going to hurt more. It means breathing is harder, going up the stairs is harder. It means that your energy level will be less. It means your brain function will be worse. So it's kind of, you know, whatever's going on with oxygen supply, mitochondria is, is going to result in a plethora of symptoms, very much like chronic fatigue. So yes, are any of the experts looking at homocysteine? Um, it's certainly one of the things that they talk about. They, it, it's there in the suggestions. And, and one of the other things is histamine, which is another in, inflammatory um, compound that the body produces. And there are high levels of homocysteine, um, of, uh, sorry, not homocysteine, of um, histamine. Uh, histamine. Mm -hmm. um, and there are one of the suggestions is to use a histamine lowering diet, for example, mm -hmm. and to, uh, to avoid certain foods which boost histamine. So that that kind of approach is of, of diet and uh, and also exercise is something that comes in for almost everything. Uh, exercise is a bit of a controversial one in this area because it's been very wrongly used in the case of CFSME, which is the chronic fatigue condition where people have been forced to do exercise. Um, and one of the things that the, the recent paper um, is very clear about is not to use the forced exercise process, uh, which is the way that people have been treated for chronic fatigue for about the last 20 years. And in fact, there are a number of the doctors who were suffering from long COVID, who were subject, whose own doctors, the doctors treating the doctors, 
said you have to do this false exercise called GET, and it's basically you do a bit more every day and you're sort of pushed to expand your exercise envelope. And they said, this is absolutely horrible. It makes me feel fantastically bad. Um, and I'm really shocked that I've been advising people to do it for, um, for years or decades. So that was one of the, um, and there's now big upsets in the um, CFSME community because they feel that finally they're being justified and they've been saying forever, um, we've got something seriously wrong with us that's biological. And it looks as if that is absolutely the case. And the idea is just psychological, it is really being kicked out of court. So that's one aspect of, of the way that the, the situation that they're trying to deal with it. That exercise thing is very interesting because if I had to put my money on it in a sort of big picture way, I would say that much like with a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome, um, that we're probably looking at mitochondrial dysfunction. That's the energy factory within cells, whether, you know, induced by low vitamin C or whatever, a number of routes to that. And the, the, the best way to recover mitochondrial function um, is to do an, an autophagy diet. This is the fasting mimicking diet. Um, we're actually right now in the middle of running a retreat on exactly that. And what we know is that five days of a very specific nutritional strategy, lower in protein, which by the way is where histamine comes from, without uh, specifically without resistance training, because if you're forcing exercise, it switches off the repair process, which is called autophagy and switches on the growth process. And the point about going into this five day repair, much like a sort of putting your car in for a service, is that um, damaged mitochondria, and this is my uh, proposal that people with long COVID have got damaged mitochondria, get recycled, new mitochondria get made. And as happens at the end of this five-day process in the following week, people experience a, a massive increase in energy. But this whole area of long COVID, it's an open book right now. Uh, let's hope that complementary approaches do get taken seriously. Unfortunately, we have now run out of time. Uh, but Jerome, I want to thank you immensely for uh, participating in this conversation about vaccines, vitamins, long COVID and everything else. And for those listening, I hope that this uh, has been useful for putting everything into some sort of context. Thank you very much. Thank you. I